Amen. Be seated. Thank you. Take God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at two verses in Matthew chapter 5. But I ask you to also, uh, once you found Matthew chapter 5, mark your place there. And then turn over to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the two passages this morning. And in these two passage, passages, Jesus teaches about God's will for marriage. Back in the mid-1970s, the American automobile industry found itself in a bit of a crisis. Uh, profits for 75 years and products for 75 years had been uh, widely accepted, widely used, but they were starting to lose market share. And so the heads of those automobile companies decided that they needed to take some action and already feeling that they were somewhat behind the curve, knew that they needed to make some changes and make some adjustments quickly. So the executives at the Ford Motor Company uh, decided that uh, they would get together and talk about what their alternatives were, what they needed to change about manufacturing. They, they examined every facet of the business. What are we doing in sales? What are we doing in marketing? And while they were going through that process, the executives decided uh, that what they would do is they would go back into the records of the Ford Motor Company and see what they could learn about the company over the years, where they had gone wrong. And in their research, they went back and found the original notes of Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company. And when reading his notes, they said they saw that Henry Ford had written out, handwritten out, his purpose for the Ford Motor Company. And he had written out these words. He said, we will make dependable affordable automobile transportation for every eligible driver in America. And the people of the Ford Motor Company, the executives decided at that very moment that uh, what they had done is that they needed to simplify. And with that statement, what they did is they began to examine everything and they had found out that Everything they were doing in their business had gotten somehow complicated. And so that they were going to streamline the business and come back and bring it back in line with the company's original plans and Ford's uh, vision for what the motor company would become. You know, today, when we think about things that are being talked about all around us and things that affect us and those that we love and those that we know all around us, we hear conversations going on um, about uh, marriage. We have conversations going on about uh, gender identity. We have conversations that are going on about uh, sex. And, uh, you know, we, we see advertisements on television. Pride Month. We have all of these things that are going on around us. And what's interesting to me 
is that as we are seeing these things unfold before us and as we engage in conversation, as we're impacted by this, the thing that I've noticed most of all is that we are talking about these things as if we created them. And I want you to know that the definition of pride is that pride is spelled with a capital I in the middle of it. Pride is when I set up what I think is best for me more than what God thinks is best for me. That's, that's a good definition of pride. And so what has happened is, is today we have forgotten that marriage and sex and gender are all things that God created. And by the way, God created all of those things before he created the institution of government, which he also created. But now you hear in courtrooms and you hear in government by lawmakers and everything, they talk about all these issues like they created them, like they invented them. Well, that's not true. And that's what Jesus found in his day. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to call people back. And he says, I want you to understand what God's will is for marriage. And I want you to follow along with me as we're reading in Matthew chapter 5. Now, for those of you who are joining us online, those of you who may be visiting with us today for the first time, let me tell you that I didn't just randomly select this text. We have committed ourselves to do a study of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And all I'm doing is I'm just walking through the text and taking them practically a paragraph at a time as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount unfolds for us a number of different issues. And I want you to listen to what he wants to say to us this morning through his word as he speaks to us in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. When we began our study of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that I've pointed out to you is that the topics that Jesus teaches on in the Sermon on the Mount for Matthew represent a, a good collection of, you want to know what Jesus taught? Let me tell you. And he puts together this collection. And remember that Matthew's message to Hebrews, uh, Jewish people who are wanting to know what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ, has collected these things <clears throat> of Jesus and it is quite possible that all of these things, this sermon that Jesus uh, taught, it's quite possible that he sat on the side of a hill and he shared this message, all three chapters at one time. That's certainly what our popular view has been. It's a view that I've held for, for much of the time. But when you look at Matthew's purpose and his gospel, it's probably not likely that Jesus said all of these things in one sermon at one time. In fact, the text tells us back in Matthew chapter 4 that he called his disciples to come to him. And they sat down and Jesus began to teach them in the company of a great number of people. And Jesus' message is, Matthew wants to get across this message, that Jesus is for everybody. Not just Jews, but for everybody. And you want to know what Jesus taught? Let me tell you, this is what Jesus taught. And quite possibly he taught these things in the presence of a great number of people, of multitudes of people who heard him 
speaking these words. Now, I bring that to your attention this morning because I want you to understand here's a good example of one of those lessons. This isn't the only time Jesus taught on this topic. In fact, the commentary on this passage is found in Matthew chapter 19. And I want you to turn there with me in your Bible. And we're going to look together at uh, beginning at verse 3 in Matthew chapter 19. And uh, I'm going to add a verse to it this morning. We're going to read through verse 9. That'll be on the screen for you. But I want you to also listen to what is said in verse 10. Uh, Some Pharisees approached him, that is Jesus, to test him. And they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let Let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? And he told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now I want to add this 10th verse. It's not on the screen, but I want you to read it. And his disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Lord, we love you. We thank you for speaking to us in your word. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. And thank you, God, for the grace that you give to us in Jesus. And thank you for the truth that he speaks. And Lord, we believe that you are good. We believe you are holy and righteous. And that you know what is best for us and want what is best for us. So thank you for speaking to us at points that touch our everyday lives. And we want to give you the praise for what you would say to us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus pronounced the highest standard for marriage in history. He never spoke more clearly about any subject. Now, practically, Jesus made no comment on the legal questions of divorce. He spoke only on the divine law. Also, Jesus said nothing about the roles of divorced persons in the church. That's another question. So he's not speaking to the courthouse. And he's not speaking to the church house, but rather he's speaking of the throne of God. And we notice as we look at the words of Jesus, that Jesus discerns the divine intention 
in marriage. Go back and look with me at verse 3 in Matthew chapter 19. And what we find that sets up this particular discussion of this topic is that he's asked a loaded question by the Pharisees. They were always trying to to trap him, to catch him in some falsehood. And so they carefully worded this question in order to try to cause Jesus to say something that would discredit him because he was popular among the people. But when we notice in his answer that Jesus refused to speak a divorce without first speaking of marriage. Marriage, Jesus says, roots in God's creative intention. No discussion of marriage or divorce should avoid that. Twice, if you look at the text again with me in Matthew chapter 19, you will notice in verse 4 and then again in verse 9, Jesus emphasizes the only viewpoint from which to understand marriage is that of original creation. What this says to me and what it should say to all of us is that we don't solve marriage problems by looking at the deterioration of divorce but rather by looking at the intention of creation. The first question is never, how can I get divorced, but why should I stay married? You see, Jesus taught that, first of all, marriage is an exclusive union. In verse 4, he points out the fact that God made one man And God made one female, one male, one male, and one female. And he brought them together for the purpose of being united to one another. Now, the very self-limitation in creating only Adam and only Eve requires an exclusive relationship. This union is so exclusive that it even transcends that of the relationship between parents and their children. Marriage is an exclusive union. It is a union between one man and one woman. But marriage is also, as we look at Jesus' words, an effective union. Verse 5 says this, A man will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Genesis 2, verse 18 reads, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will create or make a helper corresponding to him or suitable to him. The union of one man and one woman for life completes mutual deficiencies of the man. And the woman. God recognizes that each individual alone is deficient. Now, from this stance, the deficiencies of a marriage partner are not grounds for divorce, but grounds for marriage. To be whole, the other person needs me. 
to be whole, I need the other person. So marriage is an exclusive union, and marriage is an effective union. But notice what else Jesus says. Jesus says marriage is a permanent union. Verse 6, chapter 19. Jesus says God's the one who makes marriage permanent. In marriage, look at what he says. Two become one flesh. When a marriage is physically consummated, God has joined the man and the woman. And no act of man, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, can change that. Now, I brought today something that I want to illustrate this because I think this illustration helps us see what's happened in our society. Uh, And this tends to be the prevailing view, I think, of marriage today. I've got here two pieces of construction paper, one blue, we're going to let the blue represent the man, and then one over here that's red, we'll let this represent the valentine, the women. And so what we're going to do here is I'm going to take some Elmer's glue, and I'm going to join the blue and the red to one another. And let me see. By the way, I was never good at art class. But we're just going to try this here. No rehearsal for this illustration, by the way. So I take full responsibility of this just like totally blows up in my face. Okay, so you can see here, I've taken the glue and I've joined together the red and the blue pieces of paper together. But look what happens. I can take these two pieces of paper... And though it's got this glue between it, I can tear these two pieces of paper apart. And what do I have? I've got a red piece of paper and a blue piece of paper. Now, this tends to be the prevailing view that we have of marriage. Two people joined together. And then when the glue wears off, they separate And you've got red, and you've got blue. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that's not at all what happens in a marriage relationship, for he says that marriage is a permanent union. The glue does not wear off. And what is more, what he says is what you get when you combine red and blue is not red and blue, but what? Purple. It becomes an entirely different entity. And that is what Jesus is teaching when he speaks to us about marriage. And he's going to reinforce this as we go on and we study further in his text. So marriage is an exclusive union. Marriage is an effective union. And marriage is a permanent union. Over and over again, when we go back and we look at the original manual, the original design, the original purpose, what we find is that marriage is a mysterious, miraculous work of God. So what we have when we look at God's Word and we see what Jesus is teaching here, first of all, we notice that what Jesus teaches is that he discerns the divine intention for marriage. 
But I want you to notice secondly, as the conversation unfolds with the Pharisees who have posed this question designed to trap Jesus. Secondly, I want you to notice with me this morning that Jesus not only discerns the divine intention for marriage, but Jesus defines the Old Testament concession about divorce. Let's read together again from Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. This is not on the screen, but I want you to follow along with me. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? And he told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. Now, to what passage of Scripture are they referring here? They're referring to the law of Moses that was given to uh, the people of Israel as they were uh, about to enter the promised land. And I want you to see what was stated in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. So write that down, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And it's on the screen here. We're going to read it together. Deuteronomy 24, beginning at verse 1. Now, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now, if after leaving his house, she goes and she becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." Now, just briefly, when we're reading Deuteronomy chapter 24, we understand that the Hebrew people are just coming out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Egypt had all kinds of gods, and the Israelites had been affected by all that they saw going on around them. And we know that they had difficulty with idolatry and idol worship on their way, leaving Egypt. Uh, out of Egypt. Even though there was a God that had revealed himself and shown himself to be the one true and living God who actually defeated the Egyptian army and Pharaoh and brought him to his knees, these people would follow God and then they would fall away from God. And there was this pattern that went on back and forth, back and forth. And during Israel's exodus from Egypt, God permitted divorce on the basis of, the text tells us, sexual immorality. And on that basis, the Pharisees maintained that God had commanded divorce. Now, where do we get that? Well, remember what he said back in verse 7. It wasn't Jesus speaking, but the Pharisees talked when they posed the question. They said, God commanded us to give divorce a divorce certificate. And Jesus responds, what's his response in verse 18? His response, uh, excuse me, verse 8 of chapter 19 in Matthew's gospel. Jesus responded, God permitted you to divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. 
What Jesus' contemporaries did was they made a perversion out of a reluctant concession. They had confused God's perfect intentional will with his conditional permissive will. And we notice when we look at Jesus' words and what he said and how he answers He explains the Old Testament divorce law was a reluctant concession. In Deuteronomy 24, coming from a background of polygamy and slavery, the Hebrews experienced chaos concerning divorce. Gross sin had intervened intervened since original creation. The recently released Hebrew slaves, they had neither precedent inclination nor power to submit to God's perfect will. In effect, when you're reading Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, Deuteronomy 24 makes the best of a bad mess. That's what it's about. Now, the Old Testament divorce law was a reluctant concession with rigorous restrictions. Divorce at that time had been performed orally, often in a fit of anger. Moses' law restricted divorce in several ways. First of all, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, notice that it stipulated there had to be a written certificate of divorce. The written certificate of divorce had to be drafted by a Levite And then it had to be attested to by witnesses. There's a restriction. A second restriction we see in Deuteronomy 24.4 is that such divorce was final. In Deuteronomy 24.4, the scripture tells us that the first husband may not marry his first wife again. There could be no capricious stepping in and out, in and out of divorce But the whole process, you see, that Moses called for, called for reflection that would retard rampant divorce. But the Pharisees totally misunderstood. Going back to Matthew chapter 19 and the 8th verse, we notice that Jesus insisted It was not like this in the beginning. Jesus taught that we must not look at God's reluctant concession, but rather look at his original creative intention. Now, thirdly this morning, I want to say, that the text tells us Jesus declared his position about divorce. The first Adam of Genesis exercised pride and along with Eve, they made a decision together We know what's best for ourselves. So we're going to 
go our own way. We know what God has said, but we're going to do it this way. And what happened was the world was plunged into sin. And the same sin nature that dwells in the first Adam of Genesis has been perpetuated and passed on to every person in our world. We all have a sin nature. Now, if you doubt that, sin is not something that is taught. If you doubt that, I want to invite you to go back into the nursery and I want you to watch those children at play. You'll see one child grab a toy and take it away from another child. You think they were taught that at home? I don't think so. They learned that on their own. Why? Because we all have a sin nature. You have to be taught to share. Not to take away. Not to steal. You're not taught to steal. You can figure that out on your own. What you're taught is how to share. And so here's what we find in God's word as Jesus speaks. He declares his position about divorce. And we need to understand just as there was a first Adam in Genesis, there's a second Adam that God sent into the world. And the second Adam, Jesus Christ, leads man back to God's perfect will for marriage. In the cross, resurrection, and Pentecost, Jesus deals with the hardness of heart that the Bible speaks about. He creates a new humanity. And when we look at Jesus' teaching in our text, we find that things in the kingdom of God that Jesus came to institute are different. In the kingdom of God, the marriage bond is indissoluble. The only exceptions to that indissoluble bond are adultery and death. Either one of those breaks the bond. Now, the Roman church teaches that marriage is absolutely indissoluble. That's wrong. Adultery, by its very nature, introduces confusion and another one flesh union. This is so heinous, so inexcusable, and destructive that Jesus permits divorce. It so effectively breaks the marriage bond that the innocent party may remarry as if the partner had died. The ideal, however, is reconciliation even in adultery. How do we know that's true? Because God wrote an entire book of the Bible to teach that very lesson. In the book of Hosea, the book begins in Hosea 1, verse 2, with God telling Hosea to go and take a woman of uh, promiscuity and take her to be his wife. 
Now, this is a real event. This really happened. This was a real marriage union. Hosea, called by God to be a prophet of God, <clears throat> said, Hosea, your life is going to be the message that I want to preach to my people. So Hosea goes and he takes this woman to be his wife from among the pagan people. And what happens is they are married to one another. They begin their marriage together. And then what does she do? She leaves him. And she runs off and takes on another man. And then she goes off and she marries another man. And then another until finally she is cast off. And what does God say to Hosea? Hosea, I want you to go down there to the slave block and I want you to buy Gomer back and take her back to be your wife again. Here's a woman who's committed adultery once, twice, three times. It's a pattern here. And then God says, Hosea, this is my message to my people. They have committed acts of adultery against me, their one true God. They have been unfaithful to me. And Hosea says to Gomer, I have bought you back, and now you are to be true to me as I am to you. Lean in close. Lean in close. Is this how God loves? Yes. We have committed unfaithful acts of adultery against God. But he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that if we would repent of our sin and turn from our sin and return to God, he wants us to come back. God is the God of reconciliation. And no matter what has gone on in your life, I want you to see this is how God loves us. Now, I want you to see a second thing that Jesus teaches. He teaches that marriage is a bond that is indissoluble, but he also teaches that the one who breaks the marriage bond is responsible. Go back and look at uh, 532, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Listen to the words of Jesus. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Whether the bond is broken by adultery or by putting away a mate without adultery, the initiator is the one who is responsible to God for the action. The point that he's trying to get across to us is that adultery is not just committed with somebody, it's committed against somebody. At worst, adultery involves the adulterer, the partner in adultery, and the mates of both of them. But in divorce without biblical grounds, the initiator forces the mate and the future marital partner into the stigma of adultery. That's what Jesus says. With or without grounds, divorce has terrible implications for many people, not just two, but for many people. But then lastly, I want you to notice with me, and this 
is the point to which Jesus drives us. And that is, thirdly, divorce and adultery are forgivable. Just as any other sin committed against another person is forgivable, so is adultery. Divine forgiveness in the Scripture depends upon an attitude of absolute repentance and human forgiveness. The adulterer must recognize that his or her sin is primarily against God's creative intention. We're to have the attitude that David has in Psalm 51, verse 4. David committed adultery and broken by his action. He bows his head before God and he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, obviously, David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against her husband Uriah. He had sinned against the nation by failing to keep the laws of God as their spiritual leader and head. See, divorce did not, adultery in that case did not affect just two people, but it affected many people. And David tried to hide it. He tried to run from it. He tried to keep it a secret, but it didn't work. Can you think of all the energy you and I spend? Now, I'm not just talking about adultery here. Do you think of all the energy you and I try to spend just trying to cover up our sin? I mean, you'd think when you come to church that you're sitting among a group of people who, you know, live in a monastery Monday through Saturday. Folks, let me just say something to you. We've got issues. All of us have issues. We all have things that affect us. And what we have been brought to today is come to the reality of if here is my sin, God, my sin, and mine alone. And it's not just against everybody else, but it's against you, God, that I have sinned. And on that basis... Adultery, like all other sins, is forgivable. And the good news is this. Christ does forgive. Scripture says if we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and what? Cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. Think of all the energy we expend just trying to cover up. When we could be clean if we'd only confess. 
I need confession every day. Many times, multiple times in a day. Now, I don't think I'm alone in that. And there was a time in my life where I had built my life saying, I want you, Jesus. And then what I did was I set up all these goals for myself. And I started accomplishing those goals. I, I wanted this, and I got that. I wanted this, and I got that. And i tell you how sick I was. I wanted to play football for Baylor University. That's how sick I was. And I got my dream. And then guess what happened? Now, I mean nothing by this except just to state the obvious. I'm six feet tall. I weigh 179 pounds. And I'm white, and I play cornerback. Now, if you know anything about football, you'd say he's playing out of position. And you know what God began to do? He showed me that there's always a faster gun in the West. And what he began to do is he began to break down the kingdom I had built for myself one block at a time. Until a man who should have been one of the happiest people on earth looked in the mirror as a sophomore at Baylor University and saw the most miserable man on earth. And I was in the athletic dorm at Baylor University, which then was Martin Hall. And they had things like that. They had athletic dining and they had, athlete, they had athletic dorms. I went over to my bed. It was a Tuesday night. I went over to my bed and I got down on my knees. And I just cried. And I just said, God, I am so sorry. Six years ago, I asked you to come into my life to be my Savior. And for the last six years, I've thought about everything and everyone else but you. And I am so sorry. God, I've left you out of my plans. I've trusted in other things for my happiness and my joy. And I began to name one by one all the things I could think of that came to my mind that I had done in those six years since I took Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And you know what? Over time became clear, having accepted Jesus at 14 years of age, and now being 20 years old, 
I realized I could have been a six-year-old Christian, but instead, you know what I had done? I had redone the first year, really, the first week, over again six times. So here I am, just a baby Christian. Now, I tell you that story today to let you know that God does forgive. And the Scripture tells us that the same God who forgives is the same Jesus who says in John chapter 8, verse 12, Go and sin no more. Now, obviously... I've sinned since then. But what Jesus is saying to us is he's saying true repentance is coming before God and saying, God, I turn from my sin to you, Jesus. I want to go your way, not my way. And that's the message that we are reading over and over again and again as Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. What had happened was the Pharisees, the religious people in Israel at that particular time, they had turned a relationship with God into keeping laws and they had sucked the heart right out of it. And Jesus comes along and he says... I'm going to show you what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the message that we read in Matthew chapter 5 is not about law-keeping. You and I are not saved by deeds that we have done. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is not talking about justification by faith in Matthew chapter 5. What he's talking about is having a relationship with God results in changed heart attitudes and actions. In other words, as he speaks to his contemporaries, Don't go around talking about having a relationship with God if there's been no change of heart and no discernible change in your actions. And so today that brings us to a point of decision and examination. Is your relationship with Jesus Christ just words? Or do your attitudes and actions give evidence of the fact that Jesus has changed your heart? I want us to stand together and join together in a time of prayer.